Don't worry, I'm not preaching. I'm just reading the scripture. It's from Revelation. I'm beginning in chapter 21. And this is John, the Apostle John, writing this. And he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is our hope, and that is the word of God this morning. As we continue our time in the Word this morning, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, Lord, you have promised to dwell with your people, and I ask right now as we open your Word that you would help us to see the beauty of that promise, that we would long for you with all our hearts. Pray that you would let us experience your holiness through your Word now, and in Jesus' name. Amen. We've just read from Revelation an incredibly beautiful description of the city that God makes in the new creation and His promises to dwell with His people. To be in the presence of God is an awesome and incredible thing. And I want to ask as as we begin this message from Exodus, 
Have you ever had a place where it seemed easier to meet with God? Has there ever been a place that you've gone where it seemed like God was closer? For some people, if you've been to camp, if you've enjoyed retreats, some people say that God seems closer when you get away. For other people, if you've been blessed to be part of a, of a good church, you may feel closer to the Lord when you're with certain people. But I believe, based on the Word of God, that God is always available through His Word. And if you seek Him through reading His Word or through listening to preaching, if you try to listen to what He says, Scripture says if you seek Him, you will find Him no matter where you are. And it's my prayer that as we look at the tabernacle in Exodus, that will help us seek Him on a regular basis so that we can enjoy His presence. And this past week, I've been praying along with a few others that today, in this hour, we would experience the holiness of God in a powerful way so that we would be in awe of His greatness in an even more powerful way than those awe-inspiring moments, perhaps when you see a newborn baby, or when you see a perfect sunset, or you're just in awe at what God has done. My prayer is that we would be in awe of the holiness of God, and that we would use His word from Exodus to help us experience that now. So I've already used the word tabernacle, It's a strange word. It only exists in the context of the Bible. We would never use it anywhere else. But I haven't defined it. So what is the tabernacle? Well, the the tabernacle is a sacred tent. It is a movable temple. God's people have been delivered from Egypt. They are at Mount Sinai at this point in Exodus. They have not yet been permanent residents in the promised land. Many of them, most of them, have never been there at all. The tabernacle is a movable tent for people with no home so that they could experience God's presence in their nation. It is furnished according to God's exact instructions. And every design, every furnishing should help us understand who God is. So the fundamental question is, do you want to know the Lord and experience His presence? Today, now. And I hope that all of us do. And if that's the case and you do, then understanding how God made this possible for people in Israel should help us understand what that means for us today as people who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come in a vacuum. He came as the fulfillment of all of these promises. And these help us understand who he is and how we can come into God's presence as his people. So God says in Exodus 25 and verse 8, and I'm going to be looking at a few passages in Exodus, but to begin with, he says in Exodus 25 verse 8, that this tabernacle could be called a sanctuary. It is a holy place, and he instructs them to build it. And he says the reason is that I may dwell in their midst, that they would have the real presence of God in their nation. This portable temple 
was the center of Israel life and worship, very literally. And the passage that we'll see today contains instructions for setting up this tent, this tabernacle. And my goal today is to do a quick overview of the whole building and the surrounding courtyard. And it, it's not actually built until later in the book, and we'll talk about why in, in another message. But I want you to imagine with me as vividly as you can what this tent is like. The book of Numbers, and if you remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, when Numbers starts, they're actually still at Mount Sinai. They, they don't go anywhere. The book of Numbers tells us the entire camp of nearly two million people surround the tabernacle with three of the twelve tribes on each side of it. So there are, there are three tribes to the east, to the south, to the west, and to the north. You can think about a half a million people on each side of the tabernacle so that no matter where the nation goes, it is literally the center of their nation. So I want you to imagine, starting from the outside of the camp, walking in to Israel's camp with me that is at the base of Mount Sinai. So, so think for just a second. It's unimaginably hot. You are in a desert. The sun is beating down. There are two million people at the base of the mountain. And God's tabernacle has been built and is set up in the middle of those two million people. Who are they? They are the Israelites. They have promised to live according to God's law. As God's chosen people, they have entered a sacred promise with him. They are holy and set apart. They have literally made a blood oath with sacrifices, pledging that they will obey and follow the Lord. And so as we walk through this camp, if you or I were to violate the law, they would hold us accountable, even as a foreigner. If you were to walk into the camp of Israel, the closer you get to the center of the camp, the more sacred, the more holy the place would be. And if you moved among the chosen people, they would expect you to observe dietary and cleanliness laws. You're not going to bring a pig into Israel's camp. They believe it's a dirty animal and as such is not welcomed as part of their society. If you have a disease for certain diseases, they would actually ask you to live outside the camp so that things that were unclean were excluded from Israel. And you would not be welcomed back until you could demonstrate to a priest your cleanliness. Why? Because they had the presence of God in the middle of their camp. And so working from the outside of the camp in, let's notice each of God's instructions for setting this up as you move closer and closer to the place where God dwells. Words like reverence and awe are words that we scarcely understand today. But I believe that they would describe perfectly what it would have been like to approach the tabernacle where you can scarcely breathe because of the awesomeness of the moment. Maybe you've experienced that if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been to something that's truly majestic, that you can scarcely wrap your head around its grandeur and its beauty. That's what it's like in a way to walk into the presence of God. C.S. Lewis said, I would not know what it meant to fear God unless nature taught me the blessings of awesome things. And so I want to invite you 
to inside that tabernacle to talk about God's holiness. And to that end, we need to go through the seven things that God describes for the creation of the tabernacle. And I actually want to start at the end of the passage and work backwards. So imagine that you are coming with me and we're going from the outside in. And the first thing that Israel has to prepare for worship is oil for the golden lampstand. Within the tabernacle, there is a lampstand. Part of the regular offerings and worship is oil that is especially pure so that it burns without any smoke. And part of the regular offerings that they make include the oil that's described in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 27. You might remember from a high school English class, maybe a novel like like the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's sometimes the first encounter of symbolism where a teacher will say, now, the color red helps you think about, and they help you fill in some of the symbolic blanks. Symbols help us experience reality in a way that a scientific explanation won't. And Nathaniel Hawthorne's book is a great example of that because he beats you over the head with such obvious symbolism that it should be impossible to miss. Red is a color in that instance of great shame. The A, in case you didn't get it in high school, stood for adultery. And the symbols should help you understand who the people are in the story. Well, this text is full of symbols. And the first one you see is oil. Oil has two related purposes in the Bible. Number one, it provides light when you burn it, and it also is a symbol of great purity, both spiritual purity and physical health and wellness purity. And actually, we'll talk more about that in a future message where they talk about the oil that they use for incense. But here, the purpose of this oil is to provide for light within the tabernacle. And the people provide this oil as a regular part of worship. And in fact, every gift that they offer to God is recognizing that God is the one who provides these things for them. They give oil for light to recognize that God is their light and salvation. And as you would approach the center of the camp where you would collect this offering, where the oil would be given, what you would find walking through that two million person camp is you would find a wall of ornate linen set up on bronze pillars and bases. And that wall would at the very least be a caution sign that says you are about to enter sacred ground. You need to be ready. That wall was about seven and a half feet high. It's not terribly imposing. It was made of canvas. It's not terribly solid. But it should serve as a caution that says, you are about to enter sacred ground. There's nothing special about the sand that's underneath you. What's special is the presence of God that goes with God's people wherever they go. The courtyard that that canvas encompassed was roughly 150 feet by 75 feet. Now that, for me, I'm not a, I'm not a carpenter. I, I'm not good with numbers. I need something more tangible. That's almost meaningless to me. So if you walk into a gymnasium, our gymnasium at the end of this building is a standard gymnasium. There's a full court, basketball court in there. A standard gymnasium is about 60 feet by about 90 feet, which means 
that it's two-thirds the length of this courtyard. So picture of a gymnasium. You've been in a gymnasium, picture that and add another 50 feet. Go with me to half court. That's your 50 feet from the wall. Add that on to the end. So we've got a tabernacle that is actually not huge. For our Thanksgiving dinner, we have somewhere around 300 people in our gymnasium, and it's tight. It's full. And this tabernacle served 2 million people. You know what that means? That means that you didn't have a lot of time there. That means that the presence of God was not something that you enjoyed constantly because you could not literally with your entire nation enter into it frequently. The tabernacle and the courtyard were not very big. They weren't supposed to be. They weren't supposed to contain the presence of God. They were supposed to make it possible for his presence to exist in the center of Israel. So I want you to continue imagining with me. They've set up the courtyard of the tabernacle. It's about 150 feet by about 75 feet wide. The courtyard of the tabernacle, and it's described in in verse 9 through 19 of chapter 27, separates what's sacred from what's common. So outside the camp are unclean things. Inside the camp are common or clean things. And inside the courtyard are sacred things. They had to be ceremonially cleansed in order to be inside the courtyard. If you were ceremonially unclean, the only way you entered the courtyard was by making sacrifices so that you could be pure to to appear before the presence of God. The danger of death is part of living with God's holiness. He is so awesomely pure that sin cannot enter into his presence. And all through the pages of scripture, when sinners encounter holiness, they fall on their knees in holy fear. But remember that God is setting up a place where he can dwell in the middle of sinful people. We need to recognize that his holiness will not allow unclean things to approach. So between the people and the holy tent, the tabernacle itself within the courtyard is a curtain. And that curtain at the very least says, approach with caution. The living God is here. And now within that courtyard, there are a few things. If you grabbed a bulletin this morning, you can see a small picture of this and actually look a little bit at each of the things that I'm describing. I'm not going to talk about the bronze laver. That's not in our text this morning. That's in a future text. The first thing that you would encounter walking through the gate to the courtyard is an altar. So the bronze altar is described in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 27. It's overlaid entirely with bronze, and it's about 7.5 feet by 7.5 feet wide. That means it is almost exactly the size of a king-sized bed. You can picture it as a, as a barbecue, really, because that's actually what it is. They offered sacrifices on that altar as they moved closer to the presence of God. And God says very clearly in Leviticus 6.13, the fire on that altar is not to go out ever. So you can imagine, what did a priest do on any given day? He chopped firewood. One of the basic things that they did was they kept the altar open constantly. And you can imagine the significance here. There is never a closed sign when you go to approach God. That fire is always burning. His presence was always available 
And the way to approach him was through that altar. You cannot escape the reality that God required sacrifice for sinful people to approach his presence. Leviticus gives instructions for different types of sacrifice. There are burnt offerings that are totally consumed, and the image is the sin requires the total consumption of this sacrifice. You and I deserve to be totally consumed, but this animal, in that case, was consumed on our behalf. There were other offerings that were celebrations of the peace that that type of offering brought. So you, you make the burnt offering, you enjoy peace with God, and then you celebrate that peace. Sometimes just a portion of the animal was burned on the altar, sometimes the entire animal was burned on the altar, but in every case, sacrifice had to be made to approach the Lord. And even then, in Israel, if you wanted to enter the tabernacle, that tent itself that is just beyond that altar... You can't do it unless you're a priest. And the only way to be a priest is to be born into the right family. The presence that Israel enjoyed is very limited. And even if you are a priest, you had better be sure that you are ceremonial clean and you are entering the tabernacle for your official priestly business. This is never casual. And only the sacrifices of blood made it possible for a priest to enter into the holy place. So the camp is for clean people. The tabernacle is for sacred things. And then within the tent that's within that courtyard is called the holy place. The tent itself separates what's holy from what is sacred. And the tabernacle, there's a very lengthy description. It describes the number of curtains. It describes, rather than bronze posts that supported the outside uh, curtain for the courtyard, these posts are actually made of silver, and they're set in bases of bronze. And so, as you get closer and closer to the presence of God, the materials for the construction are more precious and more beautiful and more ornate. The tabernacle itself is actually only about 15 feet wide by about 45 feet long. That means, if you've ever seen a single wide mobile home, they're about 15 feet wide by about 90 feet long. So cut a single wide in half and you have the dimensions for the tabernacle of God. Imagine, if you will, off the end of our gymnasium, that's where we have that tent set up. So you can go ahead and set the courtyard up, the extra 50 feet around the back of it. That's the dimensions for this sacred place in Israel. It's not large, but it doesn't need to be. Because the people enjoy God's presence through a priesthood, and the priesthood goes into the presence of God on behalf of the people. As blessed and as awesome as this was, that they could see the glory of God, they could not enjoy his presence for themselves. The priesthood goes into the tent on their behalf, and the tent itself is separated by a curtain. So there is the holy place, and then there is the holy of holies that is separated by a beautiful ornate veil, So that when you entered, you would not see where God's presence was to reside. You would see two things. So first you see a golden lampstand. The golden lampstand is described from from verses 31 through 40 of chapter 25. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a golden lampstand. It is covered in gold. It is very beautiful. It is ornate. It is burning with the oil the Israelites offered as part of their regular worship, 
And here's where the symbolism, I think, becomes really important. In the presence of God, there is light. Light is a huge metaphor throughout the Bible. Light speaks of moral purity and the law of God. Darkness is ignorance and evil. Light speaks of health and blessing and life. We might think of of warmth. Think of a day at the beach. Think of enjoying the sunlight. It's warmth and the health that we feel that comes from that. Think of the joy of a beautiful sunrise. Think of the blazing sunset that you see on a perfect day. And perhaps the most basic way to say it is this. Light means God is good. He is light. Don't miss how enjoyable this is. We love the beach because we love sunlight. No one wants to go to the beach on a cloudy day when it's raining. It's not pleasant. It's not enjoyable. But in the presence of God, there is light. And this light, just like the altar, was to never go out. And it speaks to God's eternal nature. He is never ignorant and he is never evil. He is always light. And in his presence, there is light. Do you feel that today? Do you believe that God is good Do you believe that he knows more than you and I do? So that if you don't understand what's happening, you can trust his goodness? This is a symbol that says, God is light. Now next to the lampstand was a table for bread. It's also covered in gold. It's described in verses 23 through 30 of chapter 25. The table... Is called the bread of the presence. It is, it is literally just there so that they can put pieces of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, before the Lord constantly. And it's really a sort of visible prayer. We pray with words to God. And we can and we should. This was a kind of prayer that was a constant reminder that we need His provision. So as much as the priests were butchers, they were also bakers. And like with light, bread is a metaphor all throughout the scripture, and it always means this. God gives us good things for our life. Now, I know currently bread is not popular among people who like to tell us what we should and shouldn't eat. But here is the truth. It is delicious. And the bread that was offered to God was a recognition that God gave his people good things. God gives his people what they need for life. Let me ask you, do you believe that this morning? When you are disappointed and you feel like God has not given you what you wanted or needed, are you able to praise him and trust that he is your provider? Do you recognize that that with symbols like light and bread in the presence of God, there is real joy? But there's actually more holiness beyond the bread of the presence and the lampstand that never went out. There is a veil that guards the holy of holies. And within the holy of holies is one of the strangest things in all of Scripture Chapter 25, verses 10 to 22, describes the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
You have some idea of what this is. It's a box. It's about three feet by four feet. It's carried on poles. It's covered in gold. It has a lid on top of it with two angels facing each other. And it just seems bizarre, frankly. What is this gold-plated chest with angels on the top of it doing at the center of Israel's worship? Why does it even exist? You might remember, if we've just gone through the first Ten Commandments, God says, do not make any images of me. And then when he tells them to set up the tabernacle, he says, make this thing with images on it and put it in the center of the temple. Why does he do that? The reason is, this is not God, this is not picturing what God is like. This is a a representation of the throne where God would sit. This is his footstool, and the angels that are on top might seem strange to us. In fact, I'm going to read from Ezekiel a description of what similar angels look like. But they are awesome, and they are powerful, and they are the servants of God. This chest represents the throne of God, and these angels serve at his feet. You can see evidence of that in places like Psalm 99 verse 1. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, God is enthroned above the cherubim. These are the angels that carry his throne on their shoulders. And so when you enter the Holy of Holies, you recognize that that is the place where the presence of God was to dwell, not in the tab, not in the Ark of the Covenant, but above the Ark of the Covenant, where his glory would have been. Ezekiel chapter 1 gives us one of the most vivid descriptions of this, and I think it's worth reading because for us, if you have a mental picture of a cherub, it's probably of a fat baby with little wings. My my grandmother left us a a strange sort of fruit bowl that had two little silver cherubs underneath it holding the fruit bowl up. That is ridiculous and has nothing to do with what a cherub actually is. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn with me to Ezekiel, I'll read what an actual cherub sounds like and you can get a sense of what something very similar would have been on top of this box. So Ezekiel chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses starting in verse 4, as Ezekiel describes the glory of God and coming into his presence. He says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashed forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They all had human likenesses, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings, and their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze, and under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus... Their wings touched one another, and each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of the other, while the two covered their bodies." 
And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. And for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning." The image of a cherubim is incredibly powerful. It is both terrifying and absolutely beautiful. They show supernatural strength. And the implication is, if God's angels are this powerful, if these are the servants at his feet, how much greater is God himself? There's no image of God. There's only a place for his presence. One of the other places places we see cherub in the Bible, they're not described. They are set at the gate of the Garden of Eden after the fall with a flaming sword so that no one is able to enter the garden again. These are the guards that stop things from coming into the presence of a holy God when they are not pure. And within that box, within the ark, is where the law of God is kept. This is the promise that God's people made to keep his commandments. They said, we will observe your laws. God gave them a copy of those laws so that they would be accountable to keep them. And God's copy was kept within the Holy of Holies, in effect, at his feet. And if that were all that were to the Ark of the the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, we would be done for. Because all it would do is it would hold up the law of God and God's perfect holiness, and it would be a reminder to God of all the ways we have sinned and broken his law. There was danger in coming in here. In fact, when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the one time of year that God said it was acceptable for a man to come into his presence, they literally tied a rope around his foot so that if he sinned in the presence of God and God struck him dead, they could drag him out without also becoming endangered by coming into the presence of God. So here in the Holy of Holies God has his law and his presence but there's more. The lid to the golden ark was actually called a mercy seat. And what happened with the mercy seat is once a year when the day of atonement came and the sacrifices For the peace of God were made, they took blood from the sacrifices and they sprinkled them on top of that golden box. Now I want you to imagine that as vividly as you can. It's sort of gross. But that blood is a recognition that God's people broke his laws. When I described the the covenant promise two weeks ago, I said... Little kids take little oaths like cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This is what happens if you break the promise, right? Well, a covenant promise was made with sacrifices and the two people promising were saying, if I break the promise, this is what happens to me. What happens in the Holy of Holies year after year after year is God's people say, we broke your promises, God. And the sacrifices that cover the Ark of the Covenant are saying, These are the sacrifices that are necessary so that your holy presence can continue to live among people who break your law. Now, if you appreciate the awesome holiness of God and think about what was necessary to come into the place where his presence dwelled, and think about Hebrews teaches us that this tabernacle is modeled after heaven. So it is an earthly representation of what God's actual throne room is like. That's why we read that passage from Revelation. 
Because Revelation shows that there is a future to this type of symbolism and imagery. And if you appreciate the beautiful promises that God says, like he will wipe away the tears from their eyes, you recognize his holiness is not all death and destruction. It's also a promise of radical blessing. But the age-old problem from the Garden of Eden all the way up to today is how do sinful people come into the presence of a holy God? And the answer is Jesus Christ. He is our final sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that is better than any animal sacrifice ever could have been. And the limited presence of God that Israel enjoyed is so much greater now because of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. In fact, in John's Gospel, you might remember the beginning of John's Gospel says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. What does God say? Make this ark so that I can dwell among you, so that I can live among you. Jesus becomes flesh. The word in Greek is actually, he pitched his tent among us. He became one of us, far better than a tabernacle. He actually became human. For Jewish readers of John's gospel, they would have immediately thought of the tabernacle and recognized that Jesus was the presence of God among us. Jesus in the flesh was even greater than having the tabernacle of God with the glory of God in Israel. And not only that, I've already mentioned The two symbols that are part of the inside of the tabernacle, there's bread, there's light. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I have what you need to live, and it is good, and it is full of blessing. And he also says, I am the light of the world. He provides life and health and blessing and wisdom. And if you're a believer in Jesus, let me ask you, do you recognize Jesus's awesome holiness and the provision that he made for you. The scripture says very clearly, all of us, believers and unbelievers, one day will stand in the presence of holy God. And the question is, what will happen to you in that moment? Will you come as someone who has trusted in Jesus, that the blood of Jesus covers you in all the ways that you have broken the law? Or will you come and enter into the presence of a holy God and find out that your sin is going to keep you from that presence for all of eternity? That rather than enjoying the blessings of God, you will be shut out from those blessings. Let me ask you today, are you trusting in Jesus Christ so that we can enjoy the holiness of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts. Lord, may we appreciate the awesome joy of your presence. And may we rest in what Jesus has done for us through his blood. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.